Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. Hi, I'm Molly um, and I am the Projects Assistant at the Leeds Library and today on Tales from the Leeds Library our guest is Professor Ruth Robbins. Ruth Robbins is Professor in English Literature and Director of Research for the School of Cultural Studies and Humanities at Leeds Beckett University. She has a wide range of research interests which span the 19th and early 20th centuries, Um, but her research interests centred originally on the late Victorian period in English literature, especially the literature of decadence, including the writings of Oscar Wilde, Arthur Simmons and Vernon Lee. She also has research interests in literary theory, particularly post-structuralist theories and a wide range of feminist positions. Her first book, Literary Feminisms, was published in 2000 and she edited, with Julian Wolfries, two collections of essays concerned with the works of Jacques Derrida. Ruth also has interest in autobiographical writing. Her monograph, Subjectivity, was published by Pargrave Macmillan in 2005. Her most recent book-length publication is the edited collection with Christopher Webster, Through the Pages, the Leeds Library at 250, which draws together local historians, library staff and local poets and fiction writers to celebrate the history of this Leeds landmark. Hello Ruth, thank you for agreeing to be on this podcast. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Um, And yes, so when I was researching you, it was quite difficult to narrow down (laughs) what to talk about because I really kind of wanted to delve into everything um, but ultimately, I selfishly chose to read the book that interested me the most, which was Literary Feminisms, um, which is a, a comprehensive introduction to feminist literary critique. And I think what really interested me about this book and your work was that it seems to focus on the kind of the gaps and blind spots in mainstream literature and cultural studies. Uh, not that feminist theory is niche. Um, but more that it reminds us to take into account lived experiences we might otherwise ignore. And your book, Subjectivity, about autobiographical writing, is also kind of, I guess, in this vein. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually from an Amazon review, so <laughs> about that book. That our subjectivity, far from being the secure possession of the individual, is potentially fragile and contingent. Robbins shows that the versions of subjectivity authorised by the dominant culture are full of gaps and blind spots that undo any notion of universal human nature. Subjectivity is culturally and historically specific. We are, in part, what the culture in which we live permits us to be. So I suppose my first question is, what draws you to research the way people's individual lives, as well as the cultural structures they exist in, affect their writing? Yeah, it's a complex question, so maybe I'll, I'll try and start from uh, a kind of um, key principle that I, I think I believe in, um, which is that society is made up of individuals. Mm. So what happens in historical studies and in social sciences more generally is that you tend to get um, a kind of averaging out of typical or representative experience, mm. um, and that's uh, you know so there's a sort of baseline that's being described there, so that the exceptional or the strange or the atypical experience 
um, doesn't really get accounted for in those ways. So that's one of the first principles that's mm. in my mind, that the literary text, because it's often an experimental text, it's a place to try ideas out, is a place where you can find those atypical experiences. Mm. Broadly speaking, um, in literature, you don't get the boring story, you get the atypical story, you don't get the everyday, yeah. you get the story that's added to What's that, in some um, ways. That uh, quote, or that uh, like a, a society with no eccentrics is kind of uh, decaying. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we're all the Not, same, yeah. that that way fascism lies, probably. Yeah. So that's that's one of the kind of principles I'm interested in. Um, but I'm also interested in the relationship between creativity and the the broader culture. So what are you allowed to say? What are you not allowed to say? And who does it serve? Mm. So who wins by what by those prohibitions and those permissions to say certain things in a society? Um, and you know it becomes fairly obvious that in most literate societies there's a, a kind of literary elite um, which is closely aligned probably to the political elite. Um, and that the permissions and prohibitions are strongly connected to that. And if you're not one of those people, <laughs> mm. um, if you're eccentric from that centre of power, how do you get to express anything? Um, and of course literature is one of the places in which you can do it, because you can do it by processes of disguise and coding. Uh, you, yeah, you can kind of, um, you can fake it, I suppose, mm. so that you may look like you're telling the story that the culture wants you to tell, but actually you might be doing something else instead. Mm. And in that, um, in that vein you've written, actually, you've written a lot about Oscar Wilde and Virginia Woolf, and those are both giants of the literary world whose personal lives have loomed very largely over their literary works um and i found uh, you've you've included this quote from oscar wilde in one of your um chapters on him which i quite liked um and it's from uh the critic as an artist part one and it goes to give an accurate description of what has never occurred is not merely the proper occupation of the historian but in the inalienable right of any man of parts and culture and i thought that was um it, it was quite good because it kind of uh, uh, suggests that actually all of history is kind of a <laughs> fiction or a literature or a representation. Um, so, yeah, is it, I guess, is it important that autobiographical writing is truthful and what are some of the difficulties of analysing authors' work from a biographical perspective? There are lots of difficulties <laughs> with being um, biographically minded. It's, it's obvious, it's an obvious thing that the life that a person leads will in some way find its way into their writing. Mm. But writers, creative writers especially, are not just the, um, you know, the dutiful tape recorders of their own lives. They're not amanuenses who are just saying, this happened in my life and therefore I will dump it um, wholesale into my fiction. Mm. That's not quite how it works, I think. Literature is a is a medium, like a, you know, like the the newspapers or the TV or the film, mm. um, and so what you get is a mediated version of that experience. And Wilde's a really interesting case in point. Um, so from the mid eighteen eighties, he was leading what we can only describe as a double life. 
Okay, um, he's a, a respectable married man living in Chelsea with his wife and two small children, and at the same time he's frequenting the East End of London, uh, picking up rent boys and paying them for sex. Mm. Um, it's pretty scandalous, and it doesn't it doesn't sit well with me actually for mm. various reasons. It's not the sex that worries me; it's the exploitation um, that bothers me about Wilde. Um, and in a number of his books, his plays and his novel, Dorian Gray, you find this, um, this trope, this idea of the double life being played out. So the picture of Dorian Gray is about a respectable surface and a seamy underbelly. Mm. And in that novel, it's played out as tragedy. But it's not a precise one-to-one correspondence with what Wilde was doing. At least some of what Dorian does that is so bad um, is that he's rapacious with women, for example. There are very veiled hints that he might also be picking up rent boys, but they are very, very veiled. Um, and then he plays with that same trope in the, in the vein of comedy. Um, so in An Ideal Husband, you've got a, a politician who's done something bad in his past, Robert Chilton, um, and he's, that past is about to come back and haunt him. Mm. Um, but it's played as comedy, and we're actually meant to forgive him, and we're meant to say it's fine at the end. I think the morality of that play is very dubious, actually. Mm. And it's played as farce in The Importance of Being Earnest, where the two main characters, Jack and Algie, both lead double lives, which um, Algie describes as bumbreeing. So they're respectable in one location and they're, they're, they're selling their wild oats in various ways in another location. But it's just a game and we needn't worry about it and we needn't be upset or distressed by it. Mm. Um, now, you could say that Wilde was writing a kind of wish-fulfilment fantasy uh, by saying, oh, let's make the importance of being earnest just a game. It's just a, it's just a game, we don't need to worry about it. <laughs> um, but he didn't know what was going to happen to mm. him. He couldn't predict the end point of his own career. So I don't think it's as simple as saying his life and his work are absolutely enmeshed. Mm. Um, the life and the work are connected, but they're not totally you know um they're not the same thing yeah and it, well of course the work feeds into life as well because it was um, because of a lot of his work that ultimately he i guess ended up in prison and of course um you know one of the things that interests me is not just what he wrote but how his public persona the performance he puts on for most of his career actually um affected the way that what he wrote was received mm. so it alerted some some hostile readers uh, to other possibilities in Wilde's writing mm -hmm. and his writing did become part of the trials so the picture of Dorian Gray and um, the portrait of the portrait of Mr WH which is a, a, a short story describing uh, Shakespeare's sonnets as love poems between men um, amongst other things, both turn up in the trial oh, as okay. evidence, uh, yeah. so-called evidence, of what Wilde had been up to with his rent boys. Yeah, that's, I mean, I guess I can't imagine particularly that happening today. I'm, uh, the idea that someone's creative work could be used to kind of, <laughs> yeah, make assumptions about yeah. their personal life, I don't know. Well, I think it's um, you know you can you can date the moment at which it wouldn't happen yeah. again uh, back to I think it's 1963 and the Lady Chatterley trial. Yes, um, where the the 
the prosecuting lawyer made the absolutely appalling statement that this is not a book one would wish one's wife or one's servant to read. Well, by 1963, if your wife was allowing you to tell her what to read, and if you had servants, you were already an old fogey. Mm. Um, and that, that remark has kind of gone down in history yeah. as being ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a, there was... I think for the, the 1890s, there was a legal fiction that the man and the work, mm. and it usually was a man, were absolutely entwined. But I think that, you know, the 20th century saw some quite significant changes to that view. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I actually, I was going to ask you, can you, and should you separate the art from the artist, which I, is quite a cliched question, but I actually, I mean, I guess maybe... Can you separate the art from the culture? Probably not. Yeah. Is more more of a relevant question. The, the the individual does have experiences that do mm. find their way into the the writing that they do. Whether that's strictly speaking, quite um, strongly autobiographical, like mm. Joyce's a portrait of the artist as a young man. You can track what um, Stephen Dedalus does in that novel mm. against what James Joyce did in his real life. Um, but there is still alteration. It's not. It isn't a documentary. <laughs> Do you know? I mean, he's still doing mm. something with that experience, which mm. is distinctive and different. Um, with Wolf, I think it's different. Um, there is much less. Well, I mean, there wasn't a trial at the end of her life, of course. So there's not. Yeah. Uh, there's not that sense of uh, a kind of destiny playing out in that way. Though there is a sense of destiny playing out, as I've just been rereading the letters and you get to the end of the final volume of letters and you know that the last letter is the suicide letter. Yeah. Um, and you kind of, you can feel the sense of foreboding um, arising as you as you read through yeah. that. Yeah, well, I suppose, again, that's with the kind of, with hindsight, it's, it's easier to see these these things play yeah. out, I guess. And of course, again, I don't know that Wolf in, say, 1938, as opposed to 1941, knew that she was going mm. to kill herself. Um, but because we know that, I mean, I, I've noticed this myself, that as I've been rereading the diaries and the letters, and the novels, actually, I've been looking for references of suicide. And I didn't yeah. really set that up in my head I didn't say okay I'm going to find every reference to suicide um, but there are a lot yeah do you find that you have to kind of catch yourself sometimes from um, imposing your own knowledge of what's going to happen in someone's life and, and I suppose actually we all to a certain extent mm. do that because all of I mean everyone who studies or even reads Virginia Woolf is there her work is going to be coloured by the knowledge yeah. that you know she eventually killed herself in her own personal life is going to cloud the way that you view it yeah I think that's true that we we can't escape our knowledge mm. um, but we have to be aware that that's the position that we're mm. in so I suppose the the kind of critical position that I operate within is one where I say, okay, I know this and I can't pretend I don't know it. Yeah, yeah. But perhaps I need not over-interpret it. Yeah. If I were reading this, this a similar volume of diaries and letters by someone who didn't commit suicide mm. um, and sought all the references to suicide in their work, um, what would I make of those? And I, I, I suppose actually one of the things that I found really interesting about reading your book Literary Feminisms was that you you very um you talk about this idea that there's not just one feminism Mm. Um, and in the introduction you kind of explore what 
feminisms as a plural means and that there are so many different ways to look at literary texts from a you know multiple different feminist perspectives mm-hmm. and and feminism and feminist literary critique is about picking and choosing what works what works from psychoanalysis what works mm-hmm. from post-structuralism um, and using those to inform a reading of a text so I guess looking at something or biographically is just kind of another way that um, you can read yeah. a work um, but I guess in in that vein, you talk in literary feminisms about the idea that feminist literary theory um, has made it, um, or the the idea that it's made it, uh, because it's an indispensable part of literary studies. Um, But that idea is kind of tricky and uh, dangerously complacent because it relegates feminist thinking to safe academic spaces. And it's true that um, in the years that I spent studying English, I thought that I kind of picked up a relatively good grasp of, uh, you know, literary feminist critique because I, but I never kind of actively picked a module in it. Um, but reading a book, I found out was actually not true at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I definitely would have considered myself to be a feminist, but I think more and more I've realised that you can't be passively feminist um, because you just believe in equality. Um, you have to kind of actively engage mm-hmm. in those ideas and carry them into your life and work. Do you think that mainstream or liberal feminism now is often so tokenistic or surface level? No, but I do think there are problems with it. Um, and the, 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 the issue is about plurality. Mm. Um, so the safe academic space of, of feminism is pretty well established. I, you know, I don't think that you could walk into a university department and find anybody... Uh, openly hostile to feminism so Mm. it's made it in the academy Um, but we saw just over the last year or so one or two um, events where we've kind of had to go yeah but women really aren't equal Mm. Um, so the me too thing in Hollywood Mm -hmm. a bunch of extremely privileged women actually are Mm. still suffering really quite problematic uh, relationships in their workplace that's serious and it seems to be spreading through um, the various uh, you know that every industry has its me too moment I mm. suppose um, I was thinking about the uh, the vigil for Sarah Everard mm. um, which is a very moving thing and I'm glad people did it and, and you know bore witness to their their distress and their anger um, at the same time though um, just a few months earlier, two black women were killed in a park in, in London. Mm. And where was the vigil? Yeah. Um, so not all femi- not all women are equally oppressed, as yeah. it were. <laughs> not all forms of oppression are the same. So to, to kind of to simply accept that feminism is is there and everybody agrees with it is a failure to understand the world we actually live in. It's it's not yet true yeah. um, that women are safe, equal, uh, have equal opportunities, all of those other things that we would, you know, I'm, I'm a middle-class white woman, I'm pretty safe, you yeah. know what I mean? Um, but in almost any other set of circumstances, I perhaps wouldn't be so safe. Yeah, it's true, and I, I definitely think that that's true of me as well, that I think it's easy to just think well you know I believe in equality and therefore I don't Mm. have to actively you know engage in these ideas and and think quite deeply and critically about them 
um, because they don't have an effect on my life all the time. But you've got, I've, you've actually, I picked out a quote from your book about this, um, which I thought uh, was quite good. And it goes, what feminists have to negotiate is the relationship between structures of systematic oppressions and individualized, localized experiences of them. Global capitalism is a system that has to be analysed, but how I experience it, living in relative privilege in the West, is different from the ways in which a low-paid Korean worker in Silicon Valley, California, experiences it, for example. Um, if the phrase, the personal is political, is more than a convenient slogan, it means that there is an obligation on us to understand that the systems of oppression do not impinge on us all equally. Yeah. Gosh, I, I, I'm quite pleased to... <laughs> I'd, I'd almost forgotten I'd written that. Don't I sound good? <laughs> Um, well, it, I, yeah. So, in in that way, can, how how can we foster a more critical approach to feminist thought in our everyday lives? Can literary theory have a real have real world effects beyond the safe academic spaces it most often rests in? Yeah, I, the the way I think I work, and that you know the the women I work with work, is to give our students the tools to recognise what's going on. Mm. So literature as a, as a kind of study is actually a study in critical thinking. Um, in asking that question I perhaps started with, which is who benefits from this form of representation? Mm. And you can do it to a literary text, but you can then scale it up to almost any form of representation, um, from advertising to film to uh, who you see as a possible prime minister to, you know, who is the CEO of a major international company, mm. you can scale that critical thinking up to those much larger structures. Um, so I guess that's where I, I'm, in some ways, you see, um, the humanities as a subject domain is often embattled. Mm. Uh, we often feel like we have to defend ourselves mm. uh, because we're not engineering or we're not medicine. Um, but actually, medicine and engineering need the humanities mm -hmm. too. Um, you need to be able to ask the critical question about why are we building this building in this way or this bridge in this location? Who benefits and who loses if we put a dam on this particular lake? Yeah. Um, so in engineering, you need to have those questions as part of your thinking. Medicine, I think, even more so, mm. um, because, of course, the way that women and men uh, experience disease and, and health are different. Mm. So you actually have to ask the question, what happens if the, um, the person who you're, you're trying to treat is female instead of male? Is, is it a different experience? Yeah. Does it affect that body differently? Yeah. Well, you've written an, uh, an anthology on, on women in medicine. Mm -hmm. And actually, I, I, I read recently that um, lots of most lab tests are done on male rats, which I didn't know, which seems crazy to me. Yeah. Um, because uh, female rats' menstrual cycles can get in the way. Um, yeah. And also the kind of the lack of training that doctors are given for how different uh, illnesses show up on people of colour as well is yeah. is not um, particularly strong. I think I've learned yeah. that recently as well. And women are more likely to die of heart attacks because they're not recognised. Yeah. So more fewer women will get a, will have a heart attack. There is something about the Y chromosome, but you're more likely to die of it if you're a woman mm. because people won't think that you're having a heart attack. Yeah. 
Um, and an awful lot of them, um, you know, almost all engineering is actually based on an average male body. Yeah. So I don't know if you drive a car, for instance. <laughs> um, I do, and I'm quite lucky, yeah. I'm quite tall. So I'm basically the right size for driving a car. <laughs> Um, but I know lots of shorter women than me yeah. um, who struggle to reach the pedals, for whom the, um, the, the, safety, you know, the safety belt isn't in the right place, which yeah. is actually really uncomfortable because the female physiology is also somewhat different from the male, <laughs> and so on and so forth. And that, um, things like the, the safety things, like the um, airbag mm. or the side impact bars, mm. will hit a woman in a different part of the body mm. and may actually do more more damage than good yeah and there's um one of the the parts in in literary feminisms that i was really interested in was the 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 section on um psycholinguistics and that there are some i forget who i'm sorry but people who have like theorized that language is is it kind of inherently masculine the structures mm. of the way you communicate logically is uh is quite masculine yeah which I, found really interesting and hadn't really thought about before well I mean that kind of is my point really about subjectivity yeah um your sense of self comes from language uh, most people don't really have proper memories before they learn to speak mm. now in English this is a bit disguised for us because it's not a particularly heavily gender inflected language we do have gender pronouns, he, she, and neuter pronouns like it. Mm. Um, but we don't kind of, uh, you know, it's not like every noun is gendered, um, mm. which is what happens in German or French mm -hmm. or Italian or Spanish or most European languages. So we probably notice it less. Mm. But um, we have things like... Um, uh, like cars and ships are often they're, they're, they've given female names yeah. or uh, they're called like Her Majesties, whatever. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, yeah, a kind of disturbing when you think about how yeah. easy it is to kind of call it an object, like to feminise an yeah. object. But of course you're of a generation where you would really notice um, the writing of the 1950s and 60s, say, um, crit literary critical writing where they're talking about writers um, and they will use the word he mm. without even thinking about it yeah. um, and it's not really until the late 70s and 80s that you start to see a shift to she or he yeah. um, or he or she and in more radical feminist writing she um, yeah. the, the, the choice of pronoun becomes different yeah. to point out how standard the assumption is that the world is man-made yeah and you're right and i have there are certain texts that i've read where she is the pronoun that they use and it, it it you know it's constantly in the back of your head and it doesn't you actually don't forget it every time you come across it you are reminded again and you can it can be you know often yeah. like tens of times on a on a page and it really it, it gets you every time um so yeah i guess my next question is uh, yeah, I guess the idea that um, people and culture and literary yeah. outputs and artistic um, artistic outputs are ways of, of exploring these ideas in kind of different uh, ways and thinking deeply about these things um, kind of puts the question in my mind of what, what can we learn from a culture's creative and literary output that we mm. can't learn from um, a, an historical or a social scientific perspective? Well, a social science or historical perspective 
describes to some degree, and I need to be quite careful about this, describes to some degree what's there. Mm. Um, Of course, what you see depends on where you're standing in relation to it. So it describes what's there from a very particular perspective. So if all you do is the historical or the social science, I'm, I'm of course, defending my own um, (laughs) uh, subject domain, you understand. Um, But if all you do are those things, um, what you do is diagnose. Mm. What literary texts are able to do is to diagnose and then prescribe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, particularly, uh, you know, you, you, uh, kind of radical writings of various kinds say, "Here is the problem, whatever that problem might be, mm-hmm. and let us construct an alternative reality mm-hmm. in which that problem can be resolved." Mm-hmm. So, the the kind of the fact that it's not real is actually potentially a benefit. Yeah, it's like that idea that um, sci-fi tells us. Yeah. Not anything particularly about the future at all, but everything about the kind of current... Absolutely. Current society. I think, in fact, the fantasies of a, of a given generation and a yeah. given culture are absolutely about that, that moment in time. Yeah. Um, so you, you, can't, you can kind of track it. I've talked about this in relation to things like the ghost story. Mm. Um, so the ghost story is, you know, it's a 19th century fad, really. It was an immense fashion, very, very popular... But the nature of that ghost story narrative changes as the technology of the 19th century changes. Mm. So you get new versions of the ghost story which arise um, from the technology of photography or the technology of the phonograph being able to record voices. And then there are some very particular and rather marvellous examples that come about just as moving film starts mm. to, to um, you know, become a thing. Um, yeah, so I think the technology really affects the fantasy. So yeah. they're talking not about the, the past erupting into the present. They're talking about the present and the anxiety that relates to that yeah. present. And I, there was a very um, uh, interesting part in your book where you talked about uh, the Gothic um, being coming from... So a lot, a lot of the reason why women wrote and read such a lot of gothic literature was that they they um it kind of it, it affects you on a physical level almost you're able to feel scared and you you get you know feel anxious um and it was you make the connection that it was um because women often didn't have access to a great amount of higher education um and they weren't as able to access texts written by men which were more kind of idea focused but Mm. they were able to like properly experience and enjoy texts that work on a kind of physiological level which Mm. I thought was really interesting and I hadn't I hadn't considered that before yeah um yeah, so you get the adrenaline if you're reading something like Anne Radcliffe's The Italian, which I recommend. Everybody <laughs> should read Anne Radcliffe's The Italian. I stayed up all night reading that. Mm. <laughs> um, because although I knew somewhere in my mind that it was going to be okay, sorry, that's a spoiler alert, people say, <laughs> um, the, the excitement, the ramping up yeah. of, the, of the anxiety and the suspense was extraordinarily well managed. Yeah. But it's also, you know, the Gothic is about that physiological experience, but it's also about saying the world we live in as 18th century women doesn't really have a place for us. It doesn't Mm. make us the centre of those more realist narratives. Or if it does, it it makes us into 
whores um, mm. like Mol Flanders, for instance. It doesn't make us the centre. Respectable women can't be the centre of those kinds of stories. Yeah. So how do we find a way to be in the story? Yeah. Um, and a fantasy is a place in which that can happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I want to kind of shift a little bit to talk about the the Victorian era, mm-hmm. um, and that's one of your your research specialisms is particularly the Victorian era um, era, even. And we've talked a bit about, um, or before, uh, we've talked a bit about the the Victorian period as being really the beginning of what we see as modernity. And we often, I mean, I often think about the Victorian period as, as, as a time of strictness and severeness and repression, um, but it wasn't like that, and there's a lot of frivolity and mm-hmm. fun, and the Victorian era was, um, yeah, in many ways the invention of, I mean, the the start of a culture of uh, fun and leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, so what drew you, what draws you to the Victorian period, <laughs> particularly, firstly? Yeah. Um, well, I started really being interested in it for two re- reasons, which are slightly related. Um, I'd always liked. This is po- this is possibly because I, you know, um, that I have no taste. I don't know, um, but I'd always liked the paintings of the Pre-Raphaelites, mm. um, and I got very obsessed with those as an undergraduate student, <clears throat> and then kind of followed through from there. So the inheritors of the the Pre-Raphaelites and the aestheticist movements of the eighteen seventies and eighties and so on are actually the decadents. Um, and I, you know, I was quite young. I was interested in people doing slightly naughty things in the Victorian period. Mm-hmm. So um, I wrote a PhD about decadence because I was interested in following that up. Mm. Um, and what I discovered as part of that process was that the Victorian period, very long apart from anything else, and I was really only concentrating on a quite short bit of it. Um, but the the 1890s is both full of ideas about modernity, mm. um, looking forward, looking at the new life of the city, um, new forms of journalism, new forms of representation. Uh, so you know all of that kind of cultural excitement, alongside um, an ongoing anxiety that what they what they were experiencing was end times. Mm. So the end of a century is often a, a moment where people feel a bit millennial, I guess. Um, we saw it in the 1990s mm. too. Um, and it was probably more extreme in some ways in the 1990s because it really was a millennium. Um, but Britain at that time was the um, ruler of the largest empire the world had ever seen. Um, the, it had modelled itself on Greek and Roman uh, examples and uh, they knew what happened to the Greek and Roman empires which was decline and fall mm-hmm. as Gibbon puts, puts it so the you get to the high point and there's only one way to go so on the one hand lots of excitement a, a great future coming our way on the other oh my god we are we are about to decline into something yeah. horrendous and you see both of those things being played out in the in the eighteen nineties. Yeah, I always think of that. Um, was that a French painting of the Romans? I forget what it's called. Maybe it was even called the Decadence or something. Or the that's all just like Romans lying around and drinking <laughs> wine, and it's all kind of seedy and horrible. But I um, I love that one. Um, and yeah, well, I, in the so actually, you've written a, a chapter on the Victorian Library. Mm-hmm. 
the Leeds Library. Um, but you 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 say in there that the Victorians um, they invented shopping arcades and uh, the theme park and the shopping mall and movies and amuse- the amusement arcade and the roller coaster and the crime novel and the sensational newspaper story. Um, so I'm I guess does does um does that kind of period of invention um and the beginning of modernity hold true for literature as well and what kind of literary conventions do we still see today that have their roots in Victorian writing and literary culture? Yeah, I think that really the the novel as we mostly understand it today, beyond the more experimental forms of of writing, are very much Victorian inheritances. Mm. Um, And just the kind of very fact of them that one of the largest publishing explosions of the present day is the neo-Victorian novel. Mm. So writers like Sarah Waters are immensely popular because they are going back to that moment Mm. in time. Um, so what the Victorians give us in terms of uh, uh, a kind of literary culture, they do give us science fiction. Um, and I suppose Mary Shelley has some claim, but actually I think H.G. Wells probably has a greater claim to the mm-hmm. kind of science fiction um, as we understand it, to being the inventor of it. And actually the time machine is exactly that thing I was just describing. Mm. Um, excitement about the future, we can go to the future, and it's going to be amazing. Oh, look what we've got in the future, it's really horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the time machine, I think, is a really good example of that push-pull thing. Yeah. But obviously, it's, it's a new genre, and he does quite a lot of that, and inaugurates it in a really significant way. Um, the country house murder mystery that became incredibly popular between the twen- in the twenties and thirties, you know the Agatha Christie, mm. Dorothy L. Sayers kind of murder story, that originates really in this country in the writings of Wilkie Collins. Um, so in the eighteen sixties, seventies, and so on, where he's mm. writing what are effectively proto detective stories um, amongst the respectable middle classes. Um, he doesn't originate the whole um, kind of idea of sensation, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other writers who might have done, might have a better claim for that, but he does do something really interesting with the idea of the detective story. And he bases it on a real sensational detective story, so mm-hmm. something that was in the newspapers in the 1860s. Oh, wow. That's the moonstone, cool. yes. Yeah. So, wow. Um, there is a real murder, and he uses the clues from that murder in the theft of yeah. the moonstone. And is it quite quite fictionalised, or is it? Does it well, there's no basically mur- there's, stick to the facts? <laughs> <laughs> there's no um, the the murder story in a way wouldn't have made a good novel in that period. Okay. The murder story is actually about a young woman, fifteen, sixteen years old who cuts the throat of her three-year-old brother and stuffs him down the lavatory. So that's a, it's a really <laughs> sordid story. Um, probably, as well, because although she was found guilty of that crime, there is, I think, quite a lot of doubt about whether she really did it. Yes. Wow. So. Oh, wait, no, that's, that happened in real life? That happened in real oh, life. Oh, gosh, I feel... I'm giggling about that. <laughs> um, the, um, I thought the, that was the, the, But the, the, the clues to that story um, rely yeah. on things like a blood-stained nightdress and so on. Um, And it's those things that Collins picks up. And anybody reading The Moonstone at the moment at which it came out would have recognised those pointers Mm. to what's going on in that narrative. Um, So you have done quite a lot of research, well, into the the Victorian Mm. library here. 
Um, so in 1837, the library was almost 70 years old, um, and Thomas Miller was the first professional librarian. Um, but can you tell us a bit about what the the kind of the shape of mm-hmm. uh, libraries and, and literary culture um, in the UK was uh, in the Victorian period and how the library mm. kind of slotted into that? Well, libraries in general were essential to book culture in the 19th century um, because of a publisher's cartel, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so new fiction and almost all other kinds of books were way too expensive, even for quite wealthy people to buy. A three-volume novel cost three uh, cost a, um, a guinea. So mm-hmm. a, a pound and a shilling. That's a quite significant. That's what an average man would earn in two weeks mm-hmm. uh, from from much of the Victorian period. So you can imagine even a middle class audience might not have been able to afford to buy books. Yeah. So the way that publishers got round this, because you know they quite liked this model of uh, that the extreme profits that they were making, was that they effectively sold their print runs to libraries. Mm. Um, often private circulating libraries, of which the Leeds Library is one example. Um, the most famous example is Moody's, which was based in London, but which actually had outposts everywhere, well, including the library, in Leeds. Yeah, the library subscribed to Moody's, I think. Yes. Um, we borrowed books from them because it was cheaper. Yes. But Moody's <laughs> yes. was quite... So it was a family library, and it, it was quite kind of um, protectionist about what it chose to yeah. include, wasn't it? Which um, I think the library was not so much... Uh, like that yeah. had a bit, of, there was a bit of friction there. Yeah, I mean, Moody's was um, a select library. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, all private circulating libraries were select because it cost money to join. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have any disposable income, then you don't join. Um, the Leeds Library was also a pretty elite um, organisation yes. for most of the 19th century. But that said, um, the Leeds Library is very different in its selectness. Mm. Um, it didn't select what people were permitted to read. So almost everything that we have from the Victorian Library is what readers asked to read. Yeah. And that's very unusual. So what we've got in the Victorian Library is, um, in a way, a kind of record of the tastes of the great and the good, to yes. be fair, um, of Leeds, but we've got a record of their tastes. Yeah. And their tastes range, obviously, from the great and the good. You'd ex- The things you would expect to be here are here. So there are early editions of uh, Walter Scott, Charles Dickens, the Brontes, uh, Jane Austen, you know, the people you've mm. heard of. They're not first editions, because although we kind of know that we had first editions of most of these things... Um, they got read to death and were yeah. replaced. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so we, ha- we, have, we do have a, a huge Victorian collection. And you say, yeah, it does range from the great and the good to the not quite so great and not quite so good. And I think even at the time, there's a really good and quite funny quote here, um, because I think even at the time, people felt strongly that the what people were choosing to read was not quite up to scratch. So I'll read it. Um This is, I think it was published in a newspaper. To purchase works of mere light reading, of ephemeral or of trifling interest, and readily procurable at every circulating library, in preference to, and much more to the exclusion of, works of greater or more lasting value, and not elsewhere accessible, is a misapplication of funds, and to load the shelves with works maintaining your own peculiar views or 
peculiar interest to you and to exclude works of high character only because they uphold different tenets is malversation of trust of such conduct i of such conduct i accuse you yes. <laughs> wonderful um hugely long victorian sentence <laughs> there yes <laughs> yes the the sentences are long but the idea behind it is actually mm. quite strong so the, there are there are various library movements during the 19th century um, for the working classes, at least the respectable working classes, uh, for much of the century that would be in the form of the Mechanics Institutes, mm-hmm. um, which were very male organisations, so Mechanics Institutes were for working men to educate themselves. And they very often didn't have fiction in them at all. Mm -hmm. They held newspapers and they held technical books Mm -hmm. so that you could learn a skill or learn a new um, set of ideas. Um, And there was great resistance in the Mechanics Institutes to the inclusion of fiction. Um, it's, it's something that girls like fiction you, you, you know are you women that you want to have a mechanics yeah. institute that has fiction in it um, but it's also this is the, that's not the purpose behind the mechanics institute movement so um, you know there's a kind of a, uh, a very different audience being addressed there yeah well the novel in general was kind of originally thought of as being uh, low culture wasn't mm, it I guess yeah. It isn't really until the mid nineteenth century, uh, when Dickens and, and you know whatever you think of Dickens, Dickens was immensely important mm. in making the novel respectable. And the the so we've got in our in our basement kind of mouldering away because well because of the way the books were bound in the Victorian era and because of the I think it's the acidity of the air because it's a kind of post industrial city. Um, they're not in great nick, the books, anyway. Um, and we've got this big collection of, of Victorian mm. fiction, which, the uh, like we were saying, some of it is not that great, and most of it, if not all of it, has fallen out of print. And the the issue of whether to spend loads of time and money kind mm. of rebinding and keeping these texts, I find, is, is really compelling and, and complicated and what deciding what to keep and what has historical value and as a collection obviously that it's got mm. loads of value to, to see yeah as a record of reading taste but as individual texts do you I don't know at what do you think do you well do you think collections like these are worth preserving and studying um and yeah how do you know when something <laughs> when a text has literary and historical value yeah well um i do i do think they're worth protecting though i don't know that they're necessarily worth uh, cleaning rebinding i think that the the better answer may be that we have to look at ways of digitizing the collection Mm. um i've done some work on it though i didn't get as far as i would like um, and it's an ongoing conversation in the library about how we might go about this Um, And I made a number of discoveries as I was kind of working my way through that collection. There are some things by writers, I'm a Victorian specialist, Mm -hmm. I hadn't heard of. Mm. Um, You do a quick Google search and Google hadn't heard of them either. So they are vanishingly obscure. (laughs) Um, And I haven't read these books yet. They may, in fact, be absolute tripe. There's a Mm. really good chance that they are. (laughs) But um, the tripe of a generation is also interesting. Mm. 
somebody bought those books somebody you know took that read that that name and um, saw it advertised somewhere and said okay I want to read the next one by this very obscure writer I want to read that book it was bought for the library uh, we may or may not be able to track the borrowing records at some point in the 19th century. We've got them. Name we and haven't. shame, historical leads. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't mean no, that. Okay. But I, I think it'd be interesting to know how often something was borrowed yeah. rather than necessarily who borrowed it. But I might be quite interested in that <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, and I'm sort of fascinated by what people were reading when they weren't pretending. Yeah. Um, you know, we've all seen it, haven't we? The, the, the rise of the Kindle means that people can read absolute tripe on the bus and they're yeah. not going to be ashamed because nobody knows what they're reading. Um, there were stories, weren't there, about adults reading um, Harry Potter novels on the, on the tube, but disguising that they were reading Harry Potter with a more respectable cover. Really? Uh, well, I have definitely seen people shamelessly reading Fifty Shades of Grey on the tube before. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, um, you know. Um, but what do people read when they're not being surveilled is quite an yeah. interesting question. And I do think that you can find out a lot about a culture from the stuff that's not its great works. If you're reading George Eliot, and everybody should, she's brilliant, mm. um, the surface of that novel is so smooth, is so beautifully made that it's quite difficult to dig into what's really being said here. Yeah. You're, you're being um, lulled into a position where you accept the voice of George Eliot's narrator. Um, if you're reading something a bit more trashy by Rhoda Broughton or Mary... Oh, I like Mary Elizabeth Braddon, by the way. I also recommend her. So you're reading Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Um, the surface is less smooth. You can see the gaps and the fissures mm. um, in that cultural milieu. You can see what's at stake much more easily. Um, so the the kind of um, a society's rubbish. Yeah. Archaeologists will tell you this. Yes. Tell you an immense amount about how that society operates. I suppose, as in a way, then they almost have more historical value than these kind of wonderful examples which although they may speak more clearly and more accurately mm. about a society at the time are you know exceptional examples of what's able to produce rather yeah. than um a more accurate kind of everyday example so well yes that i mean that was my next question what can we learn from popular culture that we might miss in in more literary text but um you were telling me um about so we can see trends in in publishing and we see them today with uh you were saying the word girl in the yeah. title of books has is has come up but you can see those in victorian literature as well yeah um so i was working my way through the card index catalog <laughs> um which is a, a strange object still to have in mm. some ways i quite like the fact that things don't get thrown away very much at the leeds library <laughs> um and I was the the card index is a fascinating document because it didn't list things by author, mm. which is what I would have expected. It listed things by title. So what you you suddenly come up against is clusters of titles, and then when you look at the dates of those titles, you can see that there's a fashion go thing going on. Yeah. So. In the last 25 years, I think there have been three, four dozen novels 
with girl in the title from girl with a pearl early pearl earring there you are that's a tongue twister <laughs> um through to gone girl um it's, yeah. you know, so you've got this kind of huge range girl is obviously a very marketable word yeah well i wonder what that tells us about our culture yeah why not woman by the way because they are all women so what's going on there there's a feminist point for you yeah <laughs> Um, and I found some clusters of that kind. Mm. I only got as far as about F in the in the card index, so I hadn't I haven't got to the end of it. Um, but in the C's, there were a cluster of titles that were castle titles, mm-hmm. so um, a kind of harking back to an old-fashioned Gothic mm. story, I suppose. Um, and yeah, as, indeed, there were some authors who were still describing themselves as by the author of another book so castle something by the author of a of another castle book (laughs) which i found fascinating and that you got clusters of those i guess in the sort of 20s 1820s and 1830s and then in the 1880s and 1890s there were a, a huge number of stories novels which had child or children in Mm. the title and I think Captain Marriott's slightly earlier Children of the New Forest may have been one of the the kind of precursor texts and then you get um, A Child of the Jago um, a a whole set of those titles Were they they children's literature or they were for adults? Children of the New Forest is a children's book Um, but uh, A Child of the Jago most definitely is not (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there's the, there's those kind of um, clusters, and I, I'm thinking that amongst I haven't read all of the books yet, mm. but if you kind of look at that set of clusters, you can see that there's a publishing trend. So it tells you something about the modernity of publishing. Mm. Um, in the back of many Victorian novels, you will find the equivalent of your Amazon uh, um, playlist. Yeah. So um, you, you've just read this book by George Eliot, and in the back of the book, there will be a series of adverts, which are more or less saying, if you liked this book by George Eliot, yeah. you'll like these other things does, um, as well. I think, is it Penguin still does that yeah. uh, in the back of the their books yeah and well also yeah the idea that it's this book by the author of another book as well speaks yeah. to kind of the idea that there were people who were famous or yeah, yeah. A, a really like strong publishing industry um, and then the other thing that I haven't entirely demonstrated yet but I think that there is there because uh, I found a few titles is that there is actually quite a substantial collection of new woman writing. Mm. Um, And that tells me something about the readers in this library. Yeah. Uh, New woman writing was radical. Um, It was uh, risque sometimes, you know, it's a bit dodgy, you know, a bit rude sometimes for the 1880s and 1890s and 1900s in the run-up to the suffrage campaign really taking off. So we've got women members here who are members, shareholders in their own right, Mm -hmm. who are asking for these books and they are being bought, nobody's censoring them, and they're still there, and some of them are vanishingly rare. Yeah. Um, So there may be, I don't know yet, but there may be discoveries still to make. Wow, that's so exciting. What an exciting note to, I guess, yeah, wrap this up on. Um, Thank you so so much that um, obviously this has been so interesting um and i guess as a last kind of uh point have you got anything have you got anything to plug have you got any projects coming up <laughs> obviously ruth's books are all widely available i would highly recommend literary feminisms 
I learned a lot from it. Well, that's very nice of you. Well, get it from the library. Um, I'm I'm working on a life of Virginia Woolf at the moment, mm. and that's going to be at least another two year project. So don't expect anything. <laughs> I'll be advertising in the future. Okay. Well, I will look forward to reading that. And thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. Thank you. This has been a podcast from the Leeds Library. Links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description. If you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at the Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday.